Hey everybody, it's Greg. Episodes of the QNT podcast were recorded between June and September 2022. All mentions of the Patreon are now obsolete as that channel no longer exists. The information, however, is still relevant and hopefully you find some value in it. Enjoy. Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? This is Greg Lunt, and welcome to episode three of the Quant Podcast here on Patreon. This recording is taking place on July 2nd, 2022, and our guest today is a prominent Quant community member who's always contributing his well-thought-out analysis on Telegram, on Twitter, and is now working on a larger community project, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And him and I have shared the stage a few times on Twitter Spaces, and he always brings a fresh perspective and challenges me to be even more bullish on this space. I'd like to welcome Hungarian Horntail to the podcast. Thanks for joining me, brother. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. And it's kind of a funny story. I post polls on the Patreon to invite the patrons to vote on different pieces of content that I create, and part of that is who should my next guest be on the podcast? And it actually, you know, I put up five people on this latest poll and there was a tie between you and Jeff. And then I said, all right, let me just take those two and we'll make a new poll. We'll do like a a Hungarian versus Jeff poll. And after another 24 hours, it was another tie. (laughs) So I went ahead and made the executive decision to go ahead and bring you on. And, you know, I know that you always have a ton to talk about and people are really excited to hear what you have to say. So I like to start these out a little bit different. And I just want to do a quick lightning round with you, if that's cool. So I'm going to ask you some non-crypto related questions just to give people a little bit of insight on how you think or where you're coming from in terms of your human side and not as much on the professional side. Does that work? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? The most important thing with waking up to me is not reacting to things. So I found that if you wake up And within the first hour, if you are checking types of like your email or any type of social media or really anything that could bring additional stress that you have to respond to, it can take away your ability to to be in the moment and and make effective decisions. So me personally, when I wake up, I don't I try as much as I can to not touch technology and screens for the first hour. Uh, and just wake up in, in more of like a mindful place. And, and then after I've gotten past that first hour, I feel like I'm in a much better place to to work through some different types of information. And that's where I branch out to that. What is your go-to meal to cook? Ooh, that's a good question. My go-to meal? If it's back in the bodybuilding days, like if it's prep time, it's definitely going to be chicken and rice. That's pretty easy. But right now, hmm, I think tacos are definitely going to be my go-to. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Are we counting boots? We're counting it all. Okay. If we're counting boots, I have three pairs of shoes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, who's the most influential person in your life? Well, this is actually honestly a pretty recent kind of revelation. And I'm going to risk being cliche here and say Gilbert. We'll talk a little bit about it later, but I, I have been getting involved in some new ways of trying to provide value for the community and, and helping build and support. I wouldn't be here now and I wouldn't have this vision 
uh, if it weren't for the, the vision that Gilbert had laid out around the future of the internet and, and being able to be a part of the quant community and everything that stands for. Again, as cliche as it might seem, Gilbert is actually a huge source of inspiration. And because of the work that he's done, because of the vision that he has cast, I'm able to now take my talent and, and my experience and bring it to this space in a way that provides value for other people. What social media apps do you use the most? I don't use any social media whatsoever. In fact, the process of making a Twitter account to engage with crypto Twitter was like pulling teeth. It, it was like against everything I stood for, but I, I chose to do it ultimately just to be a part of the conversation. Outside of crypto, I don't use any social media. Interesting. What kind of music do you listen to while you work? If I am working, I, I do like lighter music that's specifically designed for productivity, like binaural beats and stuff like that. If I'm not trying to focus on productivity and I'm going for more just like a flow state, trying to enjoy what I'm doing, my go-to is absolutely going to be all forms of rock and metal. What's the fiercest animal you think you could take in a fight? That's a fantastic, that might be one of the best questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> the fiercest animal, um, the, contingent on how we're defining fierce, I feel really good going toe to toe with a coyote. I think like no problem. I'm walking out of that like 10 out of 10 times. There's no chance that you survive a coyote attack, like zero out of 10, zero out of 10. Well, I'm not really up for testing it. So we'll have to agree to do <laughs> Yeah, there's no way to prove it. Okay. And then finally, who's the most interesting human on earth right now? And you can't say Gilbert. Another cliche answer, but it is true. Um, Elon Musk, I think is absolutely fascinating in what he's doing. Like going into an organization with the idea that you want to create products that move humanity forward and then building out your business model and building out your vision, your vision around that, I think is something that truly does make the world a better place. And if we had more people that had that type of mindset to where you can do well for yourself by doing good for others, it'd be a lot better and a brighter place. Yeah, hard to disagree with that. I My brain actually, as I was reading the question to you, went directly to Elon. So I want to take a step back here with you real quick and dive a little bit into your background. And we can rewind all the way. So however far you want to go back, I'd be interested to hear a little bit about your experience growing up. I don't know if you want to share maybe where, what country or what region you grew up in and what family life was like or what kind of things you were interested in, hobbies, favorite subjects at school, things like that. Yeah. So I'm from the United States and I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. If you don't know what that area is, it's a very kind of mountainous green area. It's a high-tech area too, but it has a unique balance between innovation and infrastructure and also just a lot of beautiful nature and scenery. So as a result, that had a pretty big impact on my life growing up. I did Boy Scouts and, and Cub Scouts from, you know, the very early days of, of kindergarten all the way through, you know, early adult life. And that put me in, in, in mindsets and in places where you have to think about things differently. And it gives you, I think, a, a better foundation or maybe a different foundation on what's important in life and what you want to do. My dream job when I was a kid is I wanted to be a pyrotechnician. I love the idea of being able to get paid to make my own fireworks and create fireworks shows so much so that I would actually go out and like reverse engineer my own fireworks. Uh, and <laughs> I've got some pretty crazy stories in that whole process, but the process of making and designing and understanding the chemistry and the physics behind all of it, I, I found it fascinating. And that kind of goes with what I did in school. 
math, science, and music were my favorite topics. I've been a musician since I was a very young child uh, in, in different varieties. I play a variety of instruments. I like to write music. And I think music for me is, is probably my favorite creative medium. And at some point, it'd be really exciting to be able to take that passion and, and be able to bring it into something else that I'm doing. I think a lot of people would look at it as a more traditional lifestyle growing up. I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up with some values and ideas around what's right and what's wrong and, and, and the kind of person you should be, what you should aspire to. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that that's something that a lot of people get or everyone gets access to growing up. So being able to be around such strong and influential people growing up, I think, made a big difference on the, the adult that I became and the, the values that I have now. Well, how do you think that those people that you grew up around, whether that was your parents or grandparents or whoever raised you, how do you think they would have described you as a kid? Intense. Mm. I think that's definitely the first thing that comes up. Intense, driven, stubborn, very much so. Yeah, I relate to those. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, I've been an entrepreneur since a very young age. I think I was seven or eight years old when I had my first business model working with people. Uh, I made my own candle business and I would create these different types of wax candles with variety of scents and colors. And I had my little red wagon and I'd go around door to door selling candles to people. I've owned and created dozens of different types of business models of varying degrees from these like low level stuff as a kid, just having fun to e-commerce to a variety of of different business applications over the years. If you want to understand kind of the way that I think and, and what my life has been like, that's definitely been a big part of it. That rolls kind of right into my next question, which has to do a little bit with your professional background and just any kind of thing that you've done, you know, did you go to university and then outside of that, what kind of areas did you work in? What did you enjoy the most? And anything that you want to share about your professional history that you think is interesting or relevant? Sure. My career has been largely focused in, in production, single unit leadership roles. I've done a, a variety of work in a couple different types of applications with team leadership and uh, learning and development. Early on in my career, I, I was largely just a contributor in different types of like retail and sales environments. And that kind of grew from there. And as my career progressed, I was able to focus on and gain exposure to both single and multi-unit leadership roles. Later on, I, I developed a passion for developing and helping other people grow. I accomplished a lot of like notable KPIs and, and milestones and, and accolades throughout my career. It'd be easy to throw out like numbers and, and P&L results and, and all that stuff's cool. And you know, you get your bonus and, and your performance incentives. But at the end of the day, like looking back on my career and, and what I've done. The moments that bring me the most joy and, and that make me the most inspired to want to keep growing and building is when I've found or when I've been able to help someone else accomplish one of those things. Like when you're able to help take someone who maybe let's say they don't have a whole lot of work experience and you're able to help build them up to the point where they can now start taking on tasks beyond or, or roles beyond where they were at, you know, being able to take a, an entry level frontline team member. Maybe it's their first job or the, one of the first jobs they've ever had, fresh out of college. And over the course of 6, 12, 18 months, strategically develop that person to be a high-level contributor, develop them to be the next generation of leaders. And throughout my career, I can think of a, you know, a couple dozen people where the stories that they went through, whether it was 
them being able to buy their first house or them meeting their spouse because of things that had happened at our team or things with other financial milestones, being able to pay off any debt they had. Like To this day, I, I reflect very fondly of those memories and, and I'm grateful that I was able to be in a position to help provide that for other people. Like at the end of the day, you know, there's always more work to be done and there's always money to make. And like, that's fun and that's easy. It's, it's cool to set goals and, and to drive forward and, and accomplish all that. But you can do that like anywhere, so many different ways. It's pretty straightforward. When you can have a real impact on groups of people and you can build a team that's excited and that's growing and that's winning. And because they're winning, they're helping each other. That to me just gets me fired up. And I really hope that as this continues to grow and this space matures that you know, I'll be able to, to take some of these things that I've learned and help give back in new and exciting ways to the community and beyond. Yeah, I know you're already doing that and you're working on some cool stuff. We're almost going to get to that. But I love the way that you frame that and the way that you approach your career as not just a, a me, me, me thing, but it's a we thing. And that's really a huge part of feeling like a contributor and feeling fulfilled in what you do is being able to not just collaborate, but also lift other people up and to give and lend your experience and your expertise in order to help people move along because we've all had people in our lives who have done the same for us. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of a pay it forward thing. And it's what makes you feel really special at the end of the day is to be able to say, you know, I help this person or this group of people. That's something that we can all take a lot of pride in. So I respect that. And, you know, I'm curious through all of your different positions and different experiences in the workforce, where did crypto enter the picture? Everyone has their own unique story around how it was presented to them. And I'm curious what yours is. And then following up on that, kind of where Quant entered the picture. The journey starts 12 years ago. And unfortunately, it doesn't start very much. But I, I did hear and have my first exposure to Bitcoin in 2010. Unfortunately, I didn't buy any then, but I, I did hear about it. And it was that initial interaction and the opportunity to where I could have bought like hundreds and thousands of Bitcoin for like pennies on the dollar, like fractions of a penny on the dollar. That opportunity and then seeing how Bitcoin grew over the next decade is, is what built the fire to want to learn more about crypto. The foundation for what Bitcoin did, like the precedent of value appreciation that Bitcoin had is what made me recognize the velocity and the power of this technology and, and why this is something that I should pay attention to. And that's really all it was for a while. I remember I would see I, in 2017, I saw those the, the Bitcoin being on the news at the time, all of the different types of uh, mainstream coverage, but I never dove into the actual underlying tech and I certainly never bought any at that stage. It wasn't until March, 2020, uh, that after having my business shut down and all of my revenue shut down and, and not really knowing what to do, that I kind of accidentally, serendipitously in a way, fell into crypto. Ended up connecting with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in years. And he's been in quant since just after the ICO and been in crypto for, for quite a while. After having a conversation with him about crypto and about quant, I started to do some research. I you know, went on IDEX. I got my first QNT at the time. Uh, good old IDEX, and I started to learn. Learning about crypto initially was pretty challenging because I don't have a formal technical background in software engineering or, or programming. So it felt like there was a barrier to entry that I couldn't get past. 
the first six to 12 months of me getting into crypto was about trying to understand what this actually was. And it was actually some of Gilbert's work that he's documented around the parallels between web two and web three and how the current limitations of blockchain and, and DLT very much represent a lot of the current limitations that existed a few decades ago with the internet uh, as it developed. And understanding that bigger piece kind of got me excited to want to dive deeper. And, and I've spent the last couple of years trying to understand more about what this actually is and, and, and having that foundation as a vision, it makes a lot more sense. And, and that's what kind of is the foundation for my excitement. So it's not based off of um, any one thing or any uh, set of guidelines or expectations for one project. It's, it's the larger space and, and recognizing the opportunity within all of this. That was perfect. And I think that, you know, you're one of the people that I've heard speak so intelligently and acutely on the potential for interoperability and how it's going to change the world in terms of value transfer and the impact that, that can have in a lot of different sectors as the internet did itself back in the early 2000s and all the way till today and kind of what blockchain represents and what interoperability of these blockchains represent. So I'm interested in hearing not just your current thesis on interoperability, but also how quant has changed the way you see the world and how quant specifically has impacted your life. For me, the foundation of this all is, is based on some pretty core principles. So when we talk about interoperability and the opportunity behind that, how that relates to the, the larger space and the picture of what, what's going on right now. It's important to recognize that blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology, the way it exists right now, doesn't have the ability to speak with other types of technology like that. In the 90s, as the internet of today was evolving, there, there was a lot of similar infrastructure and similar problems. The web was organized in these straight lines that really couldn't connect to each other and, and couldn't really, they weren't really practical. And at best, what you were able to do was to create a network by, by linking things together, but you weren't able to create an ecosystem. You weren't able to create a network of networks. There was no native fundamental language that all these different types of networks could speak to work together. And in, in that process, if you go back and, and you look at content from the mid 90s around what the internet is and what it's going to be like those forward-looking statements that are made by the technology enthusiasts i think you can see a lot of interesting parallels to what we see right now we see people that are excited about the broad sweeping implications from societal changes to uh, interactions but we don't necessarily see clarity in detail in the use cases and applications. And, and we certainly don't see a universal comprehension for what this technology is, what it isn't, how it's used. I mean, and the standards is a word that comes to mind for, you know, of course, us in this community. But beyond that, it, it really just wasn't something that people understood in a practical sense outside of those technical applications. So there, there's actually a defined relationship about this. It's called a Mara's law. And it's about the perception of innovation relative to the actual um, practice of, of innovation and, and, and what that looks like. 
So again, just so many different models that we see and so many different defined relationships from history that are playing out again in real time. So for me, interoperability represents a paradigm shift in human interaction. Uh, and, the, and the reason I say that is because in this context for interoperability, we're talking about blockchain interoperability. We're talking about the ability to connect and speak with different types of distributed ledgers and, and different types of, of new and evolving networks from here and beyond. These networks have incredible implications in what they can do. These networks have the ability to dramatically change how the entire global landscape works from finance to infrastructure to general interactions. But the reason that we aren't seeing that technology fully realized yet is the very same reason that we didn't see the internet in the very early 90s grow to be the, the web two landscape that we saw in, in the later 2000s, 2010s. Uh, and that was the, the advents or, or the missing piece of interoperability. So through these, these creations and innovations in, in how protocols and networks can speak to each other, like TCP, IP, and, and HTTPS, the internet collectively became this, or, or this platform where people could now share ideas with each other. And for the first time, humans could share information directly with each other. And everything that happened from there, the applications, the businesses, the companies, the models, the structures, the dynamics, the, the very societal norms and rules that we've extrapolated from these models. That's all evolved from what is essentially just the application layer of what is the web to internet. And that for me is key to understanding the big picture because when you recognize that and then you contrast with where we're at with blockchain, you look at how is this technology evolving? You look at what types of challenges and limitations. I mean, interoperability is essentially just the ability to connect or communicate uh, with two separate things or, or more. So for blockchains right now, of course, we see these exciting applications. We see new use cases evolving. We see new types of algorithms coming through. And, and even though this space isn't in its most exciting time right now, we still see innovation. We still know that all of our growth metrics are going up, the developer energy, the developer resources, the, the legacy talents. I mean, take your pick of any tangible KPI for growth. This space is going places and this space is absolutely the future. What does this all mean? We recognize that Web3 and beyond is very similar to early Web2 and that it lacks native interoperability. It lacks standards. It lacks practicality and usability by the average user, even just an organization. Like right now, it's incredibly difficult to use blockchain. And if you wanna use multiple blockchains and if you wanna use multiple existing, like let's say legacy APIs, you're gonna to have to spend a lot of unnecessary time, energy, and money putting this together and, and potentially have something that doesn't even really work for your end use case. That's part of one of the things holding back blockchain and, and with quant solving that, that's part of why it gets so exciting. Interoperability represents a life-changing opportunity for value accrual because of a unique set of circumstances. If we were back in the 90s and we were looking at these adoption, these innovations that, that facilitated what is the Web 2 of today, we wouldn't have been able to participate in them. We wouldn't have been able to invest in TCP IP. We wouldn't have been able to purchase tokens for these innovations. 
And that's because the vehicle to interact with value online didn't exist. What we created in the 90s was the way that we interact with data, the way that we interact with information. And to be able to interact with value, we had to build intermediaries. And we built these third-party entities and different types of organizations that handled payment processing and different types of value interaction. And these trusted third parties are core to the landscape, the modern technical landscape of today and the modern financial landscape, but they haven't been around that long. And the way that they operate hasn't been around that long. So when we, in a way, unlearn what we think is normal, it allows us to, to look at things as they truly are. The reason why this is uniquely exciting now is because in future state, we will be interacting with value in the same way we, that we interact with data online. The freedom and flexibility in which we have with how we interact with information is translating to value with this new layer of programmable value. And by solving interoperability, you're able to be a part of these networks from the advent of tokenization and, and how that has implications and changes and around the paradigms of ownership and, and down to the very definitions of what value is. Everything is changing very quickly. And I believe that what Quant is doing with interoperability and the way that they've chosen to solve this is something that is impacting the world at a much larger scale than most people recognize. And while it's not flashy and exciting, like um, some, some dog coin that has their token feature on the front page and it has three bullets that are really, really easy to understand, it is representative of a larger shift in how humans interact. I mean, I truly believe that what we're experiencing right now is a paradigm shift in how humans interact. For the first time in all human history, you can trust someone that you don't know. You can work with somebody that you don't know. You can interact with value with parties that you don't know or trust because the code says so. I mean, again, fundamentally, what we are looking at is we are going from a society that is built up around trust in humans and then creating groups of people and ideas around that to a society where trust is in code, code being a universal mathematical language that cannot be disputed. The implications are sweeping and we could sit here probably all day and talk about the different use cases and applications and what that means. But in a long way of going about it, that is why I'm excited about interoperability and, and further why I'm excited about the opportunity that the QNT token represents. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to dissect there. I love the big picture approach that you take and something that really stood out to me in the way that you described the role of interoperability is this transition from basically no internet to internet. And in order to understand the progression and the importance of interoperability, you need to understand what the internet was designed for, even if they didn't really know how it was going to manifest. The internet was built to open up global rails for communication of all kinds. And value transfer is one of the most important types of communication. We don't think of it as communication because it's not words being spoken or written, but value transfer is actually the way that we communicate ideas and products and services and growth as a species. And so 
the internet by definition as a communication vehicle and an evolution of the communication that we had prior cannot really fulfill its purpose unless there is value transfer that's built into the protocols and the mechanisms themselves. And so in a way, web one of being able to publish things and web two of being able to interact with those published things are just stepping stones to the internet of value. And that is web three. And in order for web three, even further to reach its potential, it needs to be interoperable, right? And so we're almost at this pinnacle of maybe not the entire manifestation of what web three will be. And I'm sure there'll probably be, I've seen jokes around web five and all this stuff. Uh, and as we enter the metaverse and what that looks like, there's obviously incredible innovation that's still yet to come. However, there's no way that any of it can take place without being able to take value transfer and allow that value to move across networks and across systems. So it's this bottleneck and this choke point of, okay, wow, we have these distributed ledger systems that, of course, vary in levels of decentralization, but they all provide some new value that wasn't available prior to blockchain. And those need to speak to each other. And without that, we can't globalize the value communication. And I think it also speaks to kind of this interesting notion of how humans interact that you mentioned with regards to organization. And I think a lot about the word decentralization and what that means. And I think that Bitcoin is the closest we'll ever get to that. However, it doesn't mean that these other systems that have potential central points of failure, let's say, which is essentially what centralization is, it doesn't take away the value that those systems can bring. And so while, let's say, Overledger, for example, will allow for incredible networks to be built that have certain levels of decentralization with respect to, I can build a product and a network and an MDAP or whatever, and I can facilitate real economies without the individual transactions needing any sort of approvals. That's really the big thing. So if I want to send you something via Chase, I have to get that approved or like Venmo, I have to get that approved in a sense. Whereas once you've entered this internet of value, there's no need for that approval. Now, of course, the level of centralization will be actually getting on board onto that system. And, you know, that is just something that we're going to have to deal with. And I think that humans must organize in some form in order to innovate and in order to communicate at scale. I think that potentially this decentralized utopia is hard for me to wrap my head around. I mean, outside of maybe a hundred or a couple hundred people, I don't see how a globe can operate in an efficient manner without coordination at some level, which then leads to some form of centralization. And I know that you're hyper bullish on this space, of course, as we all are. But I'm also curious with Quant specifically, 
how do you see the risks inherent with this project? And I guess this kind of turns more from an investment perspective and this idea that, you know, we are investing in a company that's delivering a product, not just pure infrastructure, right? This isn't the open source ODAP or SAT or anything like that. We are investing in a company. So something that I kind of struggle with sometimes is answering people's questions around those risks, even though the opportunity is so big as we've outlined. Can you share like maybe some of the things that you think about when adjusting for the risks? Yeah, I think the first risk that comes to mind, especially in light of like the last eight months or so, is the correlation between even a quality crypto asset, a quality utility token, and the, the broader market and, and Bitcoin. That poses an important discussion because as we are so early, it represents, of course, opportunity. But in a sense, it also represents risk because these assets are still heavily correlated to, to Bitcoin and, and the broader macro. So the risk, in a sense, is the timing and your personal timeline. So I think that crypto obviously has a lot of people with shorter timelines that would love to have exorbitant returns in the shortest amount of time possible. And while I think we'd all love that, that's certainly not the case. And, and if that's not how the market is moving, then uh, that's virtually impossible to do. To me, that's the biggest challenge and the biggest red flag, um, even though it's not necessarily anything to do with quant. If I had to say, what are what is my biggest risk or red flags around quant, the organization, that would just be around the, the nuances in their strategy and, and their execution. I mean, when you have an organization, like you said, we are investing based off of the ability of this team to create and execute on their vision. If something like that were to not happen and there were to be issues in production, issues in um, operation, then of course that would have an, a negative impact. I think had you asked me this question 10 months ago, it would have been a little bit different. Looking at it now, and, and looking at where we're at relative to the variables that we know, the amount that's been revealed and the growth that we've seen, I think that that asymmetry starts to build an entirely new case. And personally, I've obviously not financial advice, but I think that that starts to offset some of these earlier sources of risk in, in a quite dramatic fashion. I would agree with most of that. Your point about price is interesting because I actually tweeted about this the other day. And this idea that investing is a game of emotional management, and we all know this to some degree, but there really is a practical sense to it in thinking about not only are you going to be able to stay involved and stay exposed and even potentially increase your bags over time, especially if price decreases, but also while you're in there, what levels of stress are you feeling and how does that impact your life outside of your investing, right? Because that can roll over into your relationships, into your work, whatever else you're working on, if you're stressed about certain investments. And so how do you deal with that stress? Well, I would suggest, you know, becoming more self-aware, understanding the emotions and the energy that's flowing through you, coming up with routines and organizing your day in certain ways that you know, you are able to stay balanced and being a part of the research community and understanding the project even further and what's going on and, you know, being part of things like this and the Patreon and being on the Telegram and all these things are an excellent way to soothe your emotions and to 
learn more about what you're investing in and to put yourself at less emotional risk. So I think that's an interesting point that you made. It's funny you say that. I actually have a developmental curriculum that I used to take leaders through. And it was structured based off of what I believe are some of the most important qualities and skills that you can gain, not just as a leader of others, but as an individual. Um, and one of the first things that we would talk about and, and focus on is concepts around self-awareness and emotional self-regulation. Because whatever the application, whether you are part of a team, whether you're a leader of a team, or, or you just want to be an effective human, if you don't understand the drivers that cause you to feel different in emotions, then you have a fundamental disconnect in your self-awareness and your actions. Being able to close that gap puts people light years ahead. And I think that we talk about investing, these concepts couldn't be more applicable. If you have the self-awareness to recognize how you're feeling based off of different drivers, based off of different variables, then you have the ability to move forward and, and control it. But if you are reacting and you're allowing your emotions to influence you in a way that you can't control, I mean, I mean Greg, this goes back to what I talked about in the very beginning with uh, starting your day off in, in a proactive state versus a reactive state. When you're able to create that type of environment for yourself, you're building a foundation that allows you just to better respond to the world around you. And I find this to be universally applicable. Yeah, that's the whole game is is understanding how you operate and what triggers you. And and that, you know, ultimately all we have in this life is our experience, uh, our our second to second, our day to day, our week to week experience, and all the other things that we do and that we become a part of and the way we feel and all this, like, this is all just to have a better experience in this limited time that we have. And without understanding the way that you work and the way that you're wired, and of course you can change your wiring through different mechanisms as well and taking these proactive kind of approaches, but without doing that, you put yourself in harm's way mm -hmm. because your brain can become your biggest enemy and it can create a negative experience for you. So part of this investing game is the patience and being able to navigate those long timelines. And you're building something now that certainly like any other successful project will require patience in order to see it through, to attract the right people to work with you, to attract the community, to become a part of it. And so I'm really curious... I know that you are still in the early stages and there's only so much that you can reveal at this time, but I would love if you could give some sort of teaser to the audience, to the quant community about what you're working on. Yeah, I'd love to. Going back to what we talked about earlier in some of these methods of interactions and these paradigms that exist right now, when we look at how we interact with each other and how we interact with applications and, and different types of products in Web3, most of the infrastructure and the tools and the platforms that we use are, are Web2 tools, and whether it's a social media platform or it's a chat room or, or whatever it is. Most of these mechanisms are, are Web2 legacy tools that we are we're adding bits of Web3 content on top of, whether it's you know, we've got you know, Instagram integrating NFTs or, or we have uh, you know, businesses exploring you know, some loyalty rewards programs with some basic tokenization models like we're still very early in this evolution from web two to, to web three and, and however you want to define that. So what we're doing initially started off as, as something that was solely focused on a couple things for the community. We wanted to build an MDAP incubator. We wanted to build a, 
a community gateway aggregator, and we wanted to build out community DAO tooling. What it's become is something far beyond initially my wildest dreams. And what we're at right now is a place where we're exploring some of those boundaries in interactions. We, in a way, are pioneering new methods of ways for groups of people to interact with each other and more so groups of people to interact with each other with a layer of value in there. We're working with some unique mechanisms that I haven't really seen anywhere else. And while I can't share much more on that right now, I'm very excited to be at a point in the future where we can. And, and of course, more so to, to see these mechanisms come to life and to see value flow into our community, to see value flow into the platform, to see value moving in a way that does good for other people by them doing good for the collective. So in a way, think of what we're doing as progress in efficiency of organization, of, of people and ideas, and doing that in such a way to where we're creating value for everybody involved. And I know that's very vague and very high level, but it is extremely exciting. And I, I could not be more grateful to be a part of this and, and to be able to bring this to the community and beyond. Well, that sounds amazing. And it's super in line with you know, what we're talking about in terms of this internet of value and being able to organize people in new ways. And it seems like you're very focused on it from a social perspective in some respect. It sounds to me like it's some sort of social organization tool. And like you said, that brings value to people. And I'm interested to see kind of what you come up with. I guess one question you may or may not be able to answer is there going to be a token involved? Is this something that people can invest in? Is is a token necessary in order to bring that value that you discussed? How do you think about that? That's a really good question. There's a couple different thoughts uh, and, and ideas around how you can do that and how you can interact with value. At some point, you you have to have something that connects you to these these vehicles of value. And I think that token is kind of a natural progression for that. The challenge becomes in how you design the interactions and the flows and the di distribution of these different channels. And largely what we see in crypto right now is highly inflationary models that rely on speculative value. Um, the Even things in kind of like the mid-tier utility offerings that are, that are really working on trying to be a, a real project, for the most part, what I've seen, these token economic models aren't very sustainable. And while they can provide upward trajectory in a very hot bull market when there's free money on tap for everyone, um, seeing those being pressure tested now, I'm not really seeing any models in that type of space where the, the real value generation and the real utility mechanisms behind all of that are able to offset um, any amount, really, uh, of sell pressure from the macro. So I, I'm not at a place where we can go into how community members and beyond are going to be able to interact and receive value for their participation. But I would just say, recognize that we take this extremely seriously and we are putting extensive amounts of thought into pressure testing all of our design and having a series of third-party reviews. We have um, a series of trusted community members that are going to be involved in this process in, in various ways and already have been to provide feedback, to be critical and um, taking that through our partner channels and, and making sure that as this rolls out to the public, we are building something that's responsible and that we're creating something that does good for other people. And obviously, in a sense, we are pioneering. So there, there's an element of experimentation involved. We're doing it in a way 
to where we are finding the flaws and the holes before we even bring these products to market. So by the time the public is able to hear about what we've been building and, and how they can interact with that, they're going to be seeing the polished design. And at that point, that's where, of course, we can move forward and talking about what that looks like. Well, thank you for all that insight. And I know it must be tough to not be able to share everything, you know, because it's something that you're super excited and super passionate about. But we'll all be here for every step along the way. And I can't wait to hear more things that come out about this project. I'd like to give you the opportunity to share with people if there's anywhere they can find you online or message you if they have questions or want to support you and what you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah. So to, to get in contact with me, I have two main channels. I have a Telegram profile under the, the moniker Hungarian Horntail. I'm always in the Quampy Lounge to our main quant group, as well as a variety of other research channels affiliated with the community. And I'm also available on Twitter at 3toesloth1, uh, again, Hungarian Horntail there. As far as uh, methods beyond that to interact with our organization and what we're building for the community, I don't have a, a platform or a channel for that yet that I can share but it, it will be coming out sooner than later. And along with that too, we're actually gonna have a, a series of open positions that we're gonna be initially screening through from the community. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if anyone has any interest in being a part of, of building the future of what we're involved with, and I'd love to talk to anyone. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'll definitely keep my community updated with any openings that you have. There's a bunch of smart people that are part of the Patreon. And I will also link Hungarian's Twitter in the description. So make sure you guys follow him on Twitter. I guess my only other question, man, would be something that I've never asked you. Are you actually Hungarian? I'm not. It's from the Harry Potter series. Uh, it's one of the four dragons in, in the fourth book. I was a huge fantasy nerd growing up. I've been a gamer my whole life. So like these fantasy realms and, and series of, of fiction that go through just incredible detail in these different worlds have, have always been something I've had fascination with. So when I have to go to my kind of creative place, I kind of naturally gravitate toward a more fantasy realm. Well, man, listen, I respect and I'm excited to see you bringing these fantasies to reality through your new project. And I really appreciate you spending all this time with me today. And I'm sure everyone's going to love everything that you had to say. So thanks for the time, brother. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. Episode three in the books. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hungarian Horntail. I never get tired of hearing his 30,000 foot takes on blockchain and interoperability and the ways it's going to change our life for the better. I've linked Hungarian's Twitter, Telegram, and email address in the description below. He's looking for anyone that's interested in joining the waitlist for his new project. So if that's you, go ahead and reach out to him using any of those methods. That's it for me today. This is Greg Glunt, signing off. Peace. <laughs>